The following story is told of a pastor who walked into a neighborhood pub. He was in desperate need of using the restroom. He walked in, the place was hopping with music and with dancing and drinking, and every now and then the lights would go out. It would be dark, and then it would be followed by an eruption of a cheer from the crowd. When somebody noticed the pastor, however, all the revelry stopped and the room got very quiet. I can relate. I don't know if you can. Been there. Feeling a little awkward and out of place, the pastor went to the bartender and asked, May I please use your restroom? And the bartender replied, I, I, I really don't think that you should. He said, for heaven's sakes, I need to go to the bathroom. Can you show me the restroom? He said, why can't I use it? He said, well, to be honest with you, there's a large statue of a woman in there, and I'm afraid it would offend you. You know, being a pastor and all, she's only wearing a fig leaf over, well, you, you know what I'm talking about. And the pastor said, you know what, that's nonsense. I'll just look the other way and still feeling very self-conscious in the quiet room, he entered the men's room. After a few minutes, he emerged. The whole place was filled with music and dancing again. Everyone was giving him an enthusiastic round of applause. Several came over to him, put their arms around him, slapped him on the back, and they, and they led him to the bar where they presented him with a drink free on the house. The pastor couldn't figure out what in the world had happened from the time that he came in to the time he went to the bathroom to the time that he came out. He says, I don't understand what happened. And the bartender said, they all know that you're one of us. And he said... What do you mean that I'm, I'm one of you? I, I don't understand. How, how would they come to that conclusion? And the bartender smiled in a moment. He slid him another drink and he said, Well, when the fig leaf on the statue is lifted, the lights go out. <laughs> Oops. <clears throat> well, seemingly a funny story at first glance. It is actually a sad commentary of the hypocritical Christian life. You know, the life that professes verbally one thing only to actually live in an opposite manner. I'll look the other way, and you find out that's not the case. That's great. You're no different than us. You're one of us. I feel a lot more comfortable now that I know that. See, today in our ongoing study through the gospel of Luke, we come to a life that lives so consistently right, so consistently righteous, it spoke volumes to those who observed it. So if you've got your Bible, turn with me to the gospel of Luke in chapter 3, where we find Luke's account of the baptism of Jesus. In Luke chapter 3, we'll pick the account up in verse 21. A life that was lived so righteously that it was observed by all and none could refute it. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Now it came about when all the people were baptized that Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven Thou art my beloved son, in thee I am well pleased. And when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being supposedly the son of Joseph. To better understand this pivotal moment in the life of Jesus, we really must read all four of the gospel accounts. It's always 
you know, important and interesting to me when we find the same accounts in every one of the Gospels. There's a certain amount of emphasis that takes place on those events when you see them told in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But also there's a little different perspective that's given as Matthew sees Jesus as a coming king, as Mark looks at him as a, as a servant, as, as Luke looks at him in his humanity, and we see as John looks at him in his deity. So there's a little different flavor that's given to us, and each one of them have a different perspective, yet inspired by the Spirit of God, we find the words that are written there. It'll be interesting as we get an overview when you look at these four different accounts, how they fill in the pieces and it fits properly so that we have a better understanding of the bigger picture and then each one of them individually. So if you'll turn back to the Gospel of Matthew, what I'd like to do is go through each of these four accounts, get an overview of this same event and notice some of the differences that are found in each one of them so we have a bigger picture of what takes place. In Matthew chapter 3, we find the account starting with verse 13. Matthew writes, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering to him said, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in him in whom I am well pleased. If you'll turn to the Gospel of Mark in the first chapter, we find a similar account of the baptism of Jesus, and we note the words that are found starting with verse 9. And you'll notice that Mark has two, three verses, and it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, thou art my beloved son, in thee I am well pleased. We already saw the account that's in the gospel of Luke. Turn with me to the gospel of John in chapter 1, and we'll see the fourth of the accounts that are given in the gospels presented in such a manner. In verse 39, we read the words. I'm sorry, in verse 29, it says, In the next day he saw Jesus coming to him, speaking of John the Baptist, and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And I did not recognize him. But in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven. And he remained upon him. And I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen this, and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. What a wonderful overview that we have. And so as we look at these four different accounts, I want to share with you four things to consider. First of all, I want to go back to the gospel account of Matthew in chapter 3. And notice that in Matthew chapter 3... The first thing that we see is the initial resistance of John the Baptist to baptize Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3, you'll remember as Jesus came upon him that that, uh, John the Baptist was hesitant. He was resistant. In Matthew's account, we're told that Jesus came to John for the specific purpose of being baptized by him. 
says that Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. Now, when I read that, I had tremendous comfort and, and, and a tremendous assurance recognizing immediately that everything that our God does, he does with a purpose. Our God is a God of purpose. Jesus came specifically to John the Baptist to be baptized by him. And there was a purpose to it. There was a reason for it. You know, our God is a God of purpose. He doesn't act in a capricious manner, nor has he, you know, as some have suggested, created the universe only to step back and then allow it just to kind of operate on its own. It's foolishness to even believe that. The bottom line is, on the contrary, the Bible clearly teaches that God is in control of all things and has a purpose and plan for everything. One of the saddest songs that I heard in recent years, but was a huge commercial success, but unfortunately it was a lie when it comes to biblical truth. It was a song that was sung by Bette Midler, and some of you may remember the lyrics, where God is watching over us from a distance. From a distance. Not up close, not personal, but from a distance. It continues to perpetuate the lie that somehow if we give God credit for anything in creation, he created it, then he stepped back, and he's busy doing other things, but he isn't intimately involved with his creation. You know, the Bible teaches exactly the opposite. The Bible teaches, as we even sang this morning, that he knows our names. The Bible teaches that he knew every day that was in existence for us before we even created in our mother's womb. He has appointed for us every day that we shall live. The Bible tells us that he understands and ordains for us. He knows our thoughts and he knows our intentions. And that's why the word of God can penetrate our hearts because the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword able to, to judge the thoughts and the intentions of a man. He knows the things that we think, and he knows the things we intend to do even before we do it. And that's why it's so important, as the Word of God warns, that we have to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Even from the very days of the beginning when Cain and Abel had their struggles, and Cain was hateful towards his brother, and God warned him and said, you know what, the, the desires that you have, the thoughts in your heart, you must master them because sin is crouching at your door. And if you don't take that thought captive that I know that you have in your hatred for your brother, you will ultimately act upon that thought because our actions are always a result of how, a result of how we think. That's why Jesus said it was from in the heart of man that precedes every action. Because everything that we do, we do as we thought about it ahead of time. He said you must master it because its desire is to control you. But you must take that thought captive. We must think about those thoughts that we have, whether of God or whether they're not, whether the voice that we're hearing is one that comes from the word of God and the spirit of God, or whether it's the whisper, the lie of the enemy who wants us to take away from the truth of God. He doesn't want us to trust God. He doesn't want us to put our faith in God. He doesn't want us to lean upon him. He wants us to lean upon our own understanding. He wants us to lean upon the understanding and the philosophy of the world. He doesn't want us to lean upon God. And so as we think about this from God's word, we learn that, you know, even the very numbers, uh, the number of our hair on our head, he has numbered them. What a wonderful thought that is that know that he knows every intimate detail of our life. And you know what? And that's either a very comforting thing or it can be a very terrifying thing, depending upon what you're doing in your life, depending upon what you think about in your, in your, in your heart, 
God knows us. From God's word, I learned that even the evil intentions of men are superseded by the good purposes of God. As Joseph told his brothers, what you meant for evil in selling me into slavery, God has turned into good. God is not even limited by the evil of men, but allowing those things to happen for his divinely appointed purposes. And he makes good out of that which is bad. We learn that nothing can happen to us without God's okay from the life of Job, where Job was attacked by the enemy, but he was only attacked to the degree that God allowed it to take place. Have you considered my servant Job? But you can only do that which I allow you to do because he is in my hands. Isn't that great? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, David wrote, I fear no evil, for God, you are with me and you comfort me. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. The whole idea of God having a purpose for everything. Acts, Romans chapter 8. In verse 28, we pick up the account where Paul writes, and we know. We know this. We know it intellectually. We know it educationally. We know it because the Word of God tells us. And Paul writes, and I know it personally because I've experienced it. See, there's a knowledge that comes from experience. I know, God, what you've told me, and I know that what you've told me is true because I've lived it and I've seen it lived out in my life. And this is what we know, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. It's a done deal. You and I who have been called and chosen by God and responded to the grace and mercy of God and trusted in Christ as our Savior, we are already glorified even though we haven't realized it yet. It's a done deal. It's a purpose of God. And it will come to fruition. He will never lose any of his, nor will he ever forsake us. The rest of the chapter goes on and says, What shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Why? Because he's got it all under control. He's got it all under control. The point, the application, as it were, the question could be, Are you facing a circumstance in your life that at face value seems random and without purpose? It just seems random. It seems without purpose. You don't understand it. You can't figure it out. You don't understand what God is doing. He hasn't given you all the details. He hasn't given the answers. And, you know, we can say in hindsight, maybe we'll all understand it. But I just want to help you understand one thing as even I am being helped to understand it in my own life. And that is this, that we need to take a look again. And better yet, we need to ask God to use it to bring glory to him. To pray a simple prayer, Lord, how do you want to use this? And you fill in the blank in your own life. How do you want to use this to further your kingdom? How do you want to use this for your purpose? How do you want to use this to bring glory to you? Because when I consider what's going on in my life, I don't understand it because it's all about me. And you know what? And we are not created For it to be all about us. We have been purchased with a price. Therefore what? Glorify God in your earthly bodies. 
We have been saved to serve. We have been saved to bring glory to God. And so when these circumstances that seem to be random in our life come up, that voice is not coming from the word of God. It is the voice of our enemy who wants to bring doubt upon the circumstances of our life as if God somehow is not in control. And the reality of the word of God is he's in control of all things. And so the focus no longer is on us. The focus then turns to God. How do you want to use the circumstances that I find myself in today to bring glory to you and to further your kingdom? That's all I need to know because I want to be obedient in how I conduct myself through this process. Back to Matthew 3, Jesus came to John to be baptized by John. And if you'll notice, the question is, but then why? Why did he want to be baptized by him? Notice that in verse 15, Jesus gives the answer. He says, permitted at this time, for in this way, by this baptism of mine, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Don't miss that. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What he is saying is, by the word fitting is, he's saying that it fits all into place. What fits all into place? God's plan fits all into place. You know, when we talk about rightly dividing the word of God, I've mentioned on several occasions, we're talking about taking bits and pieces of the word of God and we put it together and it fits into place like a perfect puzzle. And God's mystery is then uh, then, uh, made clear to us by what he has shared with us. We take the pieces of the puzzle, we put it all together and we say, oh, there's the picture. When I look at this piece or that piece or the other piece, I don't know what it is. Even at the stadium, you'll, if any of you go to baseball games, they have this little deal that they do up on the, on the big screen. And they'll say, okay, this player was drafted by the angels in such and such a year. And they'll put a little piece of, of his face up there. And they'll give another clue. And they'll put another piece up and another clue and another piece up. And it's like, and then all of a sudden you hear people in the audience, you know, start to yell at, you know, the person that they think that it is. And, and you know, and when it's all said and done and all the pieces are put together, there's the face of the person. And the, the mystery is then, resolved. Well, as we read through the word of God, there are many times where something seems mysterious or unknowable or incomprehensible, but as we put it all together, it fits. And this is another example. John is saying to him, why why should I baptize you? You should baptize me. And Jesus says, permit it at this time because it all fits into God's plan. It all fits. It all is put together. As we read through the four gospel accounts, it was very interesting for me to note that John didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah until when? After his baptism. In the gospel of John, it became very clear. He said, I didn't recognize him until after the Holy Spirit descended upon him And God said, the one that my spirit descends upon, the one whom I say I am well pleased, the voice that came out of heaven, what John tells us from his account is, when Jesus came to me to be baptized, I didn't know that he was the Messiah. I didn't know that he was the Savior. He was probably standing in line with everybody else. But when he stood before him face to face, John looked at him and said, you know what? I have need to be baptized by you, not even knowing that he was the Savior and Messiah at that point. But what he was saying to him was this. For the 30 years that you've lived your life in this community, I can't believe that there is anything in your life that you would need to repent of. Your life was lived so consistently righteous that I have need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? What a wonderful... What a wonderful word picture that is for me as I consider how Jesus lived his life. 
John the Baptist said, I know you. We all know you. The whole community knows the way that you live, the way you conduct yourself. There is never one accusation that can be brought for you. You have no reason to repent. I should be baptized by you. And Jesus said, but allow this to happen. And notice that there's a but, and that but is huge as always in Scripture because he's saying, on the contrary, this has to take place so that all of God's plan fits together. But, and it leads us to answer the question, why was Jesus baptized? Well, number two, the basic reason that Jesus did it, it was because it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness and to have a better understanding of that, we have to go back to the Old Testament. And in the book of Isaiah, starting with chapter 42, going through chapter 53, we see God lays out the plan that he has for the Messiah. For the Savior of the world, we now know as Jesus Christ. John wasn't sure at this time, but he knew from the word of God that God's plan for the Savior was as it started in verse chapter 42 and it continued to his suffering in chapter 53, here's what to look for in the person that is going to be the Savior of the world. Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7, we read this. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the nations. To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from such a prison. I have called you in righteousness. So when Jesus answered John the Baptist, why should, I be, you know, why should we let this occur? Why should this happen? Because this was all part of the plan of God, the purpose of God. The basic reason Jesus did it was to fulfill Scripture as God had foretold through the prophet Isaiah. Everything God does, he does with a purpose. And everything that God does when it comes to Jesus Christ is to help the world identify him as God's Savior to this world. Jesus Christ. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews as the writer to Hebrews also helps us understand how things are fitting, how all things are put together, how it all fits into the plan and the purpose of God. In Hebrews chapter 2 we'll see that we also find several times the same word that's used, the word fitting, for it is fitting. In Hebrews chapter 2, in verse 9, this is what is fitting. But we do see him, speaking of Jesus, we see him who has been made for a little while even lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Notice this, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jump down to verse 17, it says, therefore he had to be made like his brethren, in all things that he might what? Become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God and to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Isn't that a wonderful thing? We go through this and recognize that that was fitting for him. It was fitting. And as we go back through, we'll look at two basic reasons that Jesus went to John the Baptist to be baptized. Number one, it was to approve the ministry of John the Baptist. If you remember before birth, we were told that John the Baptist would be one who would go before the Lord as a forerunner in the power and the spirit of Elijah, and he would be declaring, make straight or make straight the path of the Lord. So John went as a forerunner, and he said, I'm not the Christ, I'm not the Savior, but I am only a voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the path in which he will follow. And so all that John the Baptist did was prepare the people to receive Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. That's why when he saw him, he said, he must increase, I must decrease. He stepped back, his work was done, and God was well pleased with what he did. Because he said there was no one greater born of woman than John the Baptist. The guy lived a life of obedience to God, and at the end of his ministry, when it was all done, he got his head chopped off. And, uh, you know, and the world would look at that and say, that's terrible. And yet the word of God says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So he received his reward and he returned back to the creator so he can enjoy the presence of his savior. And so as we look at that, he basically was to approve John the Baptist. John the Baptist was who God said would come before him. The second was that Jesus at that time of his baptism announced the beginning of his ministry. And if you'll go back to the gospel of Luke, you'll notice that very clearly. That is told to us in, in verse 23. And when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age when he began his ministry. You know, it's interesting. That's a very suggestive statement. It tells us that when Jesus began his ministry, he was no less than 30 years of age. The question is, why did Jesus spend 30 years in Nazareth when he came to be the Savior of the world? And the obvious answer by now should be this, because that was God's plan, because that was God's purpose. But we don't even have to leave it at that. We can look very clearly at what his purpose was in those 30 years in which he spent. And we recognize also some interesting things from Scripture. Did you know that Joseph was 30 years of age when standing before Pharaoh, he began his great work? Did you know by the Mosaic law, the Levites, whereas they entered into priestly duty at the age of 20, were not allowed to take full work until they were 30? Did you know that King David came to the throne when he was 30 years of age? Did you also know that the order of scribes began their work receiving their insignia when they were 30 years of age? Luke tells us that in the development of his perfect personality, that Jesus came to full maturity at about the age of 30. Everything God does, he does with a purpose. Now, I look at that from an application standpoint, and I ask you this question. How about you? Have you come to full maturity? Are you actively contributing to God's kingdom? And, you know, I look at that and go, man, you know, there's a good precedent found through Scripture that by the time you're 30 years of age walking with the Lord, you know what? It's time to get busy being used by God. When I was a child, I thought like a child, acted like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. 
I know this is going to sound harsh to some of you, but I believe that it's time for some of you to put away childish things and become a man or a woman of God and start to make a difference for his kingdom. Stop being distracted in all the things that are out there in the world and let's get focused on what God has called you and gifted you, empowered you, equipped you, and enabled you to do for his purposes and for his kingdom. And as I've said in the past, you know, it's really between you and the Lord. And if you want to be disobedient, that's your choice. But I would highly, rec- I would highly advise against it. Um, but at the same time, there's something to be said for growing up in our faith and getting busy doing the things that have eternal value. Yesterday at the memorial service that I spoke at, a Diane service, there are many people that were there that, you know, I hope it was a wake-up call. For the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the mind of the full is in the house of pleasure. There are so many of us, because of the community that we live in, we get so sidetracked by golfing and second homes and going to the lake and going to the river and having fun and enjoying our life here this side of eternity that we're really useless when it comes to being used by God for his purposes and for his kingdom. And I know there are many of you who look back on your life that you wish you would have heard someone like me tell you something like this when you needed to hear it instead of when you've already figured it out and wish you had the last 20 years of your life to do over again. So consider this a blessing from God. If you're more on this side than on that side, that I'm giving you wise counsel today, don't get sidetracked from what God will have you do. Because the only thing that you will receive eternal rewards for are those things that are made of precious gold and silver and not all the wood, hay, and stubble. So, take it for what it's worth. At the age of 30, Jesus began to teach and to do according to the the second work of Luke, which was Acts chapter 1. He said, hey, he began to, to to do and teach. And after the temple encounter, Luke tells us of his growth in his home. He shows him at the age of 12, as we saw, he was dedicated completely to one thing, which was going about his father's business. He records that over the next 18 years, from 12 to 30, that he was busy uh, growing and gaining favor in the sight of both God and man, growing physically, growing intellectually, growing and living his life in the perfect will of God. He was living his life in such a manner that when he came to John the Baptist, he said, you have nothing to repent of. I'm not sure who you are yet, but, you know, I know your life and everybody around here does. You've lived a righteous life. We know from the other gospel accounts, like in Matthew 13, they said, is this not the carpenter's son? In Mark chapter 6, they said, is this not the carpenter's son? Everybody knew Jesus was the carpenter's son. Is this not the son of the carpenter? Is this not the guy who's in the carpentry business? They knew of his life. They knew of his brothers. They knew of his sisters. They given, were given their names in Scripture. We know the family life of Jesus is there and revealed during those years. His occupation was he was a carpenter. Technically, he was one who was a laborer in wood, a producer, a builder. Presently, when he began to teach, his daily calling served him. He talked about yokes. He had made them. He talked about plows. He had made them. He talked about building a house on solid ground and not on sand because he had built homes. He had done the things that you and I do. He had labored as you and I labor. He had lived out his own teaching. He knew how men lived because he lived among them. There was a purpose, there was a reason that Jesus lived among us. There was a purpose, there was a reason that he was a carpenter. There was a purpose, there was a reason that he was the head of his household. 
And, and, and history tells us that Joseph probably died at some point along the way and Jesus took over the business. And the reason that his name is conspicuously absent from the scriptural accounts is that he probably died at some point. That's why they talk about your mother is here and your brothers are here. They never talk about Joseph being there. They also talk about when Jesus died on the cross that he entrusted Mary to John for her care because Joseph obviously was no longer alive. Jesus stepped up and he took over the father, the family, business, Joseph, his father, earthly father's business, and he lived a life like you and I live. He knew the problems of making a living. He knew the problems of trying to collect his receivables. He knew the problems of dealing with customers who were just really pains in the rear end. He knew the problems that go along with all of these things. And the whole reason for that was not that he can't relate to us. He created us, but so that we could relate to him. So that we could go to him as a suffering servant, as one who was made like us and tempted in all things and yet was perfect and sinless. And we could go to him and say, how can I get through this temptation? I have a place to go because he knows us. He's lived among us. He has suffered as we suffer and yet without sin. He has labored as we labor. He knows the difficulties that we have. He knows how difficult it is to live in a family of unbelievers. His own brothers, his own sisters were not believing in him until after the resurrection. He knows what it's like to live in an unbelieving community. He knows what it's like to live righteously in the midst of those who live in darkness. And he can relate to us because, number one, he's our creator and he made us. But we can relate to him because we know he has lived among us. We can go to him. And we can share whatever our troubles are. And he can empathize with us. He can sympathize with us. Why? Because as we read in Hebrews, he's our great high priest who can sympathize with our needs. In this gospel, we'll find out that it was was his custom. He went into the synagogues. He was a man who loved God. And yet he was also God. And we can relate to that. He was committed to him. He was also one, as he preached, he could say, if you're faithful in the little things of life, then God will make you faithful in the great things of life. If you can be faithful as a carpenter building plows with excellence. If you can be faithful as a carpenter building buildings with excellence. If you can conduct yourself with integrity in the little things of life. And let me just share with you, those are little things of life because they have no eternal consequence or significance, and they tend to be our big things in life. He's saying, if you can be faithful in these little things, then I will make you faithful in the great things, and the great things are those things that are eternal, that affect the kingdom of God. If you are excellent at your business today, then he will be more trusting To entrust to you the care of his business, which has to do with eternity. Are you faithful in the little things? So when Jesus preached, he preached from firsthand knowledge to use illustrations. And no one could ever say to him, you don't understand. So what was God's purpose? What was God's plan? For those 18 years, his plan was that Jesus Christ would live righteously the life that you and I are called by God to live for his purposes and for his kingdom. 
And through that, if you go back to Luke, and we'll wrap this all together, an amazing revelation from heaven takes place. And notice this amazing revelation from heaven. It says, And Jesus was baptized, and while he was praying, while he was praying, the heavens, or the heaven, was opened. Number one, I cannot emphasize enough the importance of prayer in our daily life. I don't understand how this all works. I'll be the first to tell you, but I can tell you what I read from Scripture, and it's very clear that prayer moves God. Prayer moves God. In some wonderful way, God is moved by the effectual, fervent prayers of a righteous man. Prayer moves God. Jesus prayed without ceasing, but there are times where he prayed in public and more earnestly, and his baptism was one of them. John the Baptist and all who were alert looking on saw his attitude of adoration and worship and submission and dependence upon the Father, and they observed Jesus in prayer. Jesus prayed. It's clear in the Gospels that Jesus prayed passionately. And what a wonderful lesson that is for those of us who are prayerless people. The question I have is, do we desire the blessing of God in our life? Do we desire the affirmation of God in our life? Do we desire power for ministry? If we do, we must pray. I praise God for the prayer warriors that we have in our church. I praise God for people like Ruth who update every day in the prayer chain how God is responding to prayer. Every day we get it. We get an email that tells us all the different... Every time you turn a prayer request in, you will be blessed to know there are people committed to pray. To pray. And to follow up. And to pray. And to continue to pray until that God has answered that prayer one way or the other. We need to become people of prayer. We all need to be people of prayer. We need to be a church of prayer because prayer moves God. And so when I say pray, I don't say that lightly or flippantly or ritualistically. I don't say it in a meaningless way. I say it with all seriousness as we read the word of God that Jesus was found praying at his baptism. And notice this. And what happened when he prayed? Heaven was opened. Heaven was opened. The word that we have here is the third realm of heaven. There's three realms in the Greek language. The first one is the atmosphere that we breathe. The second one was the stars and the planets that we see. And the third heaven was the heaven that Paul was caught up into in 2 Corinthians 12 where he saw a revelation of God. He got a glimpse of heaven. He saw heaven. And if there's ever a man who needed a glimpse of heaven to keep him going, it was Paul. And all you got to do is read an account of his life and recognize how much he suffered for the cause of Christ. And God in his graciousness gave him a glimpse of what to come to keep him going here on earth. He saw heaven. But because he saw heaven, God also gave him an affliction, a thorn in his flesh, to keep him from becoming too boastful about the fact that, hey, I got to see heaven. I got a glimpse of it. God went, well, you know what? To keep you from becoming you know, a proud, arrogant person because I'm opposed to the proud, but I give grace to the humble, I'll give you this little affliction to keep your feet on the ground, your eyes on the Lord, and your mind in the Word of God. And so that's what happened. But he saw heaven. When Jesus prayed, heaven was peeled open. Can you imagine being there and seeing everyone was there because we recognize from all the four accounts that we read, we get a picture that those who were there saw heaven peeled open. Man, what a sight. 
What a word picture. You think the parting of the Red Sea was a cool thing. You know, that was like, oh, look at that. You're walking through there and you see the water on both sides. That's pretty great. Walking on dry land, that was a good one. But, but when you go, heaven was opened up. And they looked up and they saw heaven. And the same word is used of Stephen when he was stoned. And he looked up and he saw Jesus at the right hand th- at the throne of God. And he saw heaven. And he saw Steve, and Stephen saw Jesus. Well, the heaven was opened up. And from heaven, descending upon Jesus in the form of a dove, was the Holy Spirit of God. Man, I'll tell you, it is, it, I mean, it is exciting to read about it. But I'll tell you what, that would, have been a, that would have been a great day. You know what I'm saying? It's like, how'd your day go? Well, today, let me tell you what happened today. I was down at the Jordan. I was repenting of sin. The next thing we know, there was Jesus came, and we all know who he is. Man, he, no one lives more righteously than him. And when he was done baptizing, he, being baptized, he prayed. And when he prayed, heaven opened up, and a dove, a dove flew out of heaven, came on down, and rested upon his shoulder. Oh, okay. <laughs> but that's what happened. In the form of a dove. What a beautiful picture that is. Because if you think about it, Jesus used a dove when he taught and he said, Be wise as serpents, but be gentle as doves. The only time in the history of the world that the Spirit of God ever appeared in the form of a dove was at the baptism of Jesus, and it exemplified our Lord's ministry. He was gentle as a dove. He was gentle. He is also the Lion of Judah, and when he returns, he will judge as a terrifying judge. But his work today is one of gentleness, is one of compassion, is one of mercy, and he invites all who will come to him to come to him today. There was a reason. Why? Because God has a purpose for everything. Why the form of a dove? Because you know what? A dove was a form of humility and gentleness. He was a humble servant of God. And I can, also not, I can not also help to think that a dove was also an acceptable sacrifice to God for those who cannot afford a lamb. And we know that Mary and Joseph brought two doves to sacrifice for their sins. The dove the Lamb of God, would be sacrificed for the sins of the world. His prayer, the presence of the Spirit of God, and the proclamation from heaven, Thou art my beloved Son, in Thee I am well pleased. The reigning Messiah from Psalm chapter 2, from Isaiah 42, as I've told you earlier, from Isaiah 53, Thou art my beloved son. In thee I am well pleased. I am pleased with your incarnation. I am pleased with this attitude of humility and servitude that we see. I am pleased that you left the splendor of heaven and you became in the appearance of a man. I am pleased with the righteous life that you have lived for these 30 years. I am pleased with the sacrifice that you will make in the future. You are my beloved son. And it was a fulfillment of scripture that he said those words. In you I am well pleased. Men and women, that's why there is no other name given to men under heaven by which men can be saved. 
because it is Jesus Christ in him alone whom God is well pleased. We need to recognize and understand there is no other way. And before moving to the final point, there is something deeply comforting in all this to me. And it demonstrates how powerfully God works for our redemption and also the mutual work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All three persons are equally concerned for the deliverance of our souls. It is a little wonder that Paul later confidently proclaimed, as we show on our bulletin each week, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who would believe. That is why our salvation is so secure. That is why God is pleased. We see present at the baptism of Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And our salvation is secure in the person of God. Lastly, from the section, Luke identifies the important relationship that Jesus has to the Messianic line and also the plan of God. And on your own, you can read the genealogy account that's found there as we are running out of time. But I want to point out one thing that stands out from this account versus the one in Matthew because what we have here is the genealogy of Mary and it shows the descendancy that gives Jesus Christ the proper claim to his position but Luke's genealogy goes back in 38 to the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. The son of God. It terminates in God. That Jesus Christ is the son of God. And you know, and Adam was the son of God, but Adam failed miserably. Paul told the Athenians, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. All of us, in a certain manner, are the sons of God. But unfortunately, because of the sin of Adam, our sonship has been ruined. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the perfect Son of God. And in his death and in his resurrection... The Apostle Paul put it this way in closing, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all may be alive. Just as it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam, Jesus Christ, a life-giving spirit. For if by the trespass of that one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. God's pleasure is found in these words. Thou art my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. It has been said that Christ the son of God. Became a son of Adam. That we sons of Adam. Might become the sons of God. Apart from the son's work at Calvary. No one will ever hear God say. You are my son whom I love. And with you I am well pleased. God cannot say that to flawed humanity. God cannot say that to you. God cannot say that to me. However, if anyone is in Christ, he becomes a new creature in him. Old things pass away and all things can become new. And our Father in heaven can say to us, you are my beloved child. In you I am well pleased because you have put your faith and trust in the finished work of Christ upon the cross and in the power of his resurrection. Can he say that about you? Have you trusted in Christ? If not, today is the day of the Lord. Today is the day of the Spirit. 
Don't presume upon the fact that God will give you another day to think about it or another year to wonder. And don't presume upon the fact that you got a couple more years of living that you want to live and then you'll get serious about your relationship with God. Never presume upon any of that because, you know, it is appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. Today is the day. If he's calling you today, if he's choosing you today, respond to that choice. Pray this simple prayer in closing. Father, forgive me for I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. I throw myself upon your mercy at the cross. I trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sin. And I believe that he rose from the dead and is alive today and can offer me eternal life. Just as I was dead in Adam. So I believe your word tells me that I am alive in Christ as I trust in him. To the best of my understanding, I do that here and now. Lord, I look for that day when you say that in me you'll be pleased. Not because of work or effort or anything on my part but because I was obedient and believing upon your son, whom you sent to die for me. Amen. Today.